You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this segment, we'll hear from Mozilla CEO Mitchell Baker. Baker has been the chairwoman of the Mozilla Foundation for many years and was recently named CEO of Mozilla Corporation. Baker will discuss privacy in the coronavirus pandemic and give an assessment of contact tracing apps. Let's listen. Your assessment of it and how it would work and the pros and cons of such an app in other states as they might roll them out. First, I'll say it's clear from the governor's comments how much, how many different aspects need to be weighed. She described economic health, physical health, and of course, um, privacy, or in the bigger picture, you know, what's the re- my relationship and my data, what's the relationship to the government? So there's there's a lot to weigh in there. And um, the, the policy outlines of the governor's program have a strong privacy um, focus, as she mentioned. So there are a few things in there that we think are important. One is voluntary, though I'd like to talk a little bit more about mm-hmm. how voluntary something really is. Um, but it has a voluntary component. It has a very limited access to data, and it has a use limitation on what the data is used for, and it has a destruction of the data afterwards. So as design principles, those are all very positive. Um, one would want to make sure that not just Rhode Island, but any other implementation actually had the practices to carry those out. So it's easy when you begin to think, oh, this will only go to the Department of Health, but unless you're really sure and you put that in place, if the data is useful, you know, data tends to travel. So you would really want to know exactly what is limiting where it goes and whether that can be changed and how easily, whether it actually gets destroyed or not. You know, it would be very surprising to find that your employer had all that data <laughs> as well as you um, or that your employment was um, conditioned on, on those sorts of things. So as policy outlines, um, the governor is clearly um, trying to take her privacy values and focus and, and put them into the policy. So there's a fair amount of execution in that. Um, but as a privacy, um, as, a, as a balancing between all the things that you know she's got on her mind, um, it's clear that the privacy aspects are in there. So that's encouraging. Good. Um, actually, for these um, contact tracing apps to be effective, you need a fairly large buy-in or opt-in, don't you? And I think Oxford record recognized about 60%. Is that true? And do you see that as a a potential future for these apps? Are people going to opt in? Well, two things. Whether 60% is the right number or not, I'll, I'll leave that to the experts. I'm, I'm not remotely a public health expert. Um, you know, I think the opt-in piece, that that actually depends on how voluntary something is. Like, I, I don't have a particular estimate of my own of how many of us will individually decide we want to opt in. Um, but uh, it is certainly possible to make something difficult not to. So, for example, take any piece of software that you use or the phone or the, any app you use. Like In theory, you have the ability to not opt in. But in fact, in reality, you can't not opt in to the terms of you know, your Android phone or your iPhone. I mean, those are the options. And so, yes, it's voluntary to opt in to whatever is in those documents. But in reality, you can't. If you opt out of those, you're not, you, know, you don't have a, a, a smartphone. So, so I think the question of how many of us opt in is partly how many of us want to in the beginning and how limited we are if you don't opt in. Right. So if you don't opt in, can you go into a grocery store? You know, can you go into a uh, drugstore? 
Uh, can you do any of the other things that you actually need to do? And so it's very easy for that to become coercive. So I'm going to leave the predictions of, of how human beings, you know, in a particular state, you know, act uh, to, to the experts. But just note that what starts out as voluntary with all good intents can easily become quite coercive. Absolutely. Um, one of the questions I had actually before we move on is to sort of look at some of the terms of art that have come out about centralized and decentralized systems, the use of Bluetooth or lo location data. People talk about centralized and decentralized. What's the difference? In this case, the difference is where your data lives and who has control of it. So one of the design principles in the in the app that uh, the, the governor outlined is a centralized piece where all of the data goes to the health authority. And so of the sort of privacy protecting principles, as we talked about, there are many in, in the app that, that Rhode Island is looking at. Um, this one is not. This is a, the Rhode Island one is a centralized system. So that means that the information about you leaves your phone and travels to the health authority and lives in a big centralized database or you know system there. So that's a centralized system because all of your data is being gathered in one place. Uh, and so anybody who has access to that place has access to your data, but of course all the other data as well. A decentralized system um, in, in this setting means that your data stays on your device and you would get notifications that would come to you. So let's, let's give an example. Um, um, let's say it's a proximity tracing. This is, so, so Bluetooth, for example, is a proximity. It, it's designed for devices to be able to communicate when they're close together. Okay. And so it gives proximity information. And in a contact tracing app, it would be, what other phones were you near? That, that proximity piece, um, whereas location data is exactly where are you, where did you travel, you know, what's your history of, of where you went. Um, and in a, in a decentralized system, all that information remains on your phone, and someone like the health authority would send information to your phone, and it would be able to make the connections for you. And I could then decide I need to go and get tested because I've been close to somebody who potentially has the virus. It would become, come down to me to make the, the decision. Yes. So Google and Apple are collaborating. I think Microsoft has been working with the University of Washington. Has Mozilla volunteered or would they consider vetting any of these apps to, to, to advise on what makes sense? We, we offer uh, to a range of projects, privacy and security, say consulting and that, like how to think about it and, and what to do about that. Uh, you know, I think with, with Apple and, and Google, they, they certainly have the expertise um, and, and we, we would love to help as much as we can. It's not that those organizations probably don't know about privacy, so they you know, haven't come to us. Um, many smaller projects have. We have uh, also a small grant program for more open source projects. Um, so we are engaged in a fair amount of privacy and security, but, but not with the, the big tech giants. Um, and actually that, that leads me to add, there's one other principle of, of sorry, of these apps, uh, which is open source, mm. because in a, if a piece of software is open source software, then of course we can see what it does. Like not each and every one of us, but the technically sophisticated or the programmers among us can actually look and see if it's doing what it says it is. Um, and that might be difficult when you're using, for example, the, the whatever companies um, uh, Rhode Island is partnering with because their products may not be open source, 
but that means you just have to rely on someone else to know what's happening. So in the long run, if we're building building these things, you really want them to be open because that's how you make them trustworthy. So how what questions should be asked of public health officials and governments who are proposing to deploy apps of this sort? How should we be approaching the questions to ask them? How do we ensure and how do citizens know what's actually happening? What data are you collecting? Where is it going? How is it being used? And when and how is it destroyed? That's the first set of questions. How do we know? There's a set of principles in it, but but what's the effective enforcement mechanism for those things? And, and how would you know? Um, and that's, that's open source is one of those. So that's that's the first set, is actually understanding what's happening now in the middle of the crisis. A second thing is we should put in very explicit timeframes for reviewing these. Because in the middle of a crisis, we may all, like individually or as a society, decide that the government should have far more ability to look into our lives or surveil us or spy on us or, or take data off our phones and do something about it in, in the middle of this crisis. Um, but, but we certainly want to look at that and see if we want to remake our society that fundamentally over time. Right, and I guess this extends beyond uh, privacy, right, to, to other sorts of rights that we have more or less willingly given up by being locked down in our homes and wearing our masks and other things, that these are basic rights of our society that we've given up temporarily and we'll want to know that we can get them back. Yes, yes. In general, in the larger setting, I think we've seen that with this global network we call the Internet, that, that many of the balances between an individual and their government or an individual and privacy or personal security are changing, um, and that it's very easy to know uh, more about each one of us than, than we want. Where, and so that evaluation of, of what does it mean to be in a democratic society? What does individual liberty actually mean? Like how much surveillance and um, other people knowing what I'm doing and manipulating me and maybe a government doing the same thing? Like all of those questions are, are very real right now. And the, 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 the pandemic makes it clearer, sort of magnifies those. But, but even um, after the, the we, we understand how to deal with this virus and, and society returns to a more normal state, we have these larger questions about data collection and the, the state and the individual. And data and, and actually the internet connections have become so fundamental to everyday life, for school children, for other people. I have a question from a reader that I'd like to read to you. This is from Elizabeth Wisnia from California who asks, what advice would you have for students, parents, and educators work, wishing to protect their privacy during distance learning? People at home teaching and... Yes. Well, there, there's some things an individual can do, but there, there's a bunch of things that really we have to tackle as a society. So. First of all, you know, I, I would look to, first of all, do you have any options? Sometimes for your, your child to participate in the education system, there's, a, there's only one option. And so the, the privacy and security and personal security posture of that option, that, that you need to deal with the, the school group on. Um, I would look to, so for example, at Mozilla, we just published a privacy, kind of privacy guide for teleconferencing apps. You know, everything from Zoom to Signal and, and what to look for. And so if you have a choice among different apps, um, you, you can make those choices. Um, the third thing is 
you have to, you know, kind of, kind of assuming you have a choice, which if you don't have a choice, then it's a political question with your, with your school group. Um, and, and, you know, the, the things, uh, one of sort of the secrets is that there, a, a lot of the big platforms will offer an enterprise version or a paid version of something. So, for example, if you want your email to be treated by Google differently, you know, so it's not ad supported, right? You know, enterprises can pay for more privacy. And so uh, it, it's possible out there, but it, it usually requires funding, which, of course, school boards often don't have. So we have those kinds of questions to actually look at. Right. I mean, things like public schools relying on Google Chromebooks, are those vetted to protect a child's privacy? Uh, for that, you know, you'd really have to talk to Google about, you know, exactly what they're doing. You know, I will say that, that, um, you know, d despite the, 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 what we call the tech lash and, uh, you know, the, there are, you know, so many people in, inside these companies that want the right thing and want to care for children. So you, you just have to ask and, and right. see what the process is. And talking about caring for children, again, people are working from home. It's all very well for those of us who have broadband. But is Mozilla doing anything to extend broadband to people who do not have it, who have difficulty with internet access and are now struggling even more? Yes. Um, we're not a, a hardware or, a, or an internet ISP provider, so you won't find Mozilla in the field, you know, with a, with a network. But but we do, we do a range of things. Um, and we, for example, we partnered with the um, National Science Foundation to run a program for... Um, identifying and grant making and sort of seed funding for a range of projects throughout the United States for underserved communities. Um, that's a perfect kind of activity for us because we're not, as I said, we're not an ISP or, or an actual provider. So we, we've done a range of things along those lines and a fair amount of, of policy work um, and also um, community networks. You know, one of, one of the issues with often rural broadband, both it is policy related to it and what kind of community networks or municipal networks are permitted. And, that, you know, there are some places in the United States where it's actually not permitted to have a municipal network that serves a local community. And those are policies that should change. Um, so we do a, a fair amount of um, work on that level as well. I think I have time probably for one last question. And you've been talking theoretically about privacy and what it means for other people. But has this the urgency of this pandemic changed change your personal views about what kind of data you're willing to give up or the parameters of that? Well, I'm pretty far on the edge. Um, I would say a bit. I, I've moved a bit. I'm always a laggard in, in sharing personal data. Um, um, but also, you know, women and being public and being stalked, like it's, so uh, I would say I'm moving, but I'm probably not as far as most people. <laughs> and really, in my case, like the guarantee of is it temporary? When do we look at it? Are we how are we sure we're going to shut it down and reassess what a modern democratic network society with health concerns actually needs? And, I, you know, I, I think like the app, sometimes I think like these apps, they're important. So I, I'm not saying we shouldn't do them, but they also feel sometimes like a, a sort of quick fix. And there's a lot of public health policy, um, you know, um, that, that would go a long way in this pandemic as well. Good old so also 
Well, see a little bit broader range before I, I dive completely into the total sharing. <laughs> well, look, thank you, Mitchell Baker, CEO of Mozilla. Thank you so much for joining us and for opening our eyes to some of the benefits and also concerns about the kind of data sharing we may be facing as we try to innovate our way through the end of this pandemic. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.